If you please turn with me now in the Word of God to the book of the Revelation, chapter 8. The book of Revelation, chapter 8, and we read the 13 verses that are in this 8th chapter. Let us hear God's holy word. This is the word of God. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, which came with the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they cast, were cast upon the earth. And the third part of trees was burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. And the second angel sounded, as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and the third part of the sea became blood, and the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and the third part of the ships were destroyed. And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp, and it fell upon the third part of the rivers, and upon the fountains of waters, and the name of the star is called Wormwood, and the third part of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the waters, because they were made bitter. And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars so as the third part of them was darkened. And the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. Amen. This is the word of the Lord, and may the Lord be pleased to bless the public reading of his most holy, infallible, inerrant, and sacred word. Let us come to the Lord in prayer. Well, dear congregation, I ask you now to please turn your prayerful attention to those words that I read to you in your hearing there, in the book of Revelation chapter 8, and uh, reading verses 1 and 2 again, by way of introduction, we read, And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space 
of half an hour. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. So now we see seven trumpets. We enter now, we're entering into the third cycle. John saw here seven trumpets given to seven angels. Well, previously, what did John see? He saw previously seven golden candlesticks. Remember, that was the first cycle. Seven golden candlesticks. And those golden candlesticks represented the churches of Jesus Christ. We saw the Son of God walking amidst those seven golden lampstands. And we said that those churches represented uh, the churches throughout the age, or the last epoch, we could say, the gospel age, the age in which we live. We're in the last epoch. We're in the last days. From the time of the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ right up until his second coming. And we saw there Christ exhorting them, warning them, encouraging them, telling them, he that overcometh, it shall be well. But of course, he that doesn't overcome must be sure that he is not a Christian. There will be those who are in the church, but are not of the church, not of Christ. Uh, There will be those that will fall away. They never were really saved. But as Paul says in Hebrews 6, concerning true believers, but we are persuaded better things of you, things that accompany salvation. Where salvation is, there is a faith that God gives that shall keep us to the very end. 1 Peter 1.5, we are kept by the power of God through faith unto the end. When God saves us, when he quickens us, he grants us repentance, he gives us a heart to repent, and he gives us faith to believe, and that faith will not fail because it is from God. Faith is a supernatural gift of God. It's not just believing, but faith has real works, doesn't it? We're told by James that even the devils believe and tremble, but faith is different. Pistus and pistoio, these words are different words. The faith that endures is from God. And the believer will endure even to the end. He'll endure all things. Why? Because John says, he that is in you, that's the Spirit of God, is stronger than he that is in the world. The child of God that has faith does not just have faith, but he actually has the Holy Spirit. The fact that he has faith, if you look at Galatians chapter 5, 22, not now, but all of those so-called, or those gifts, or those fruits of the Spirit, are precisely because the child of God is endowed with the Spirit of God, and they will endure to the end. So the first thing John saw were the seven golden candlesticks. That was the first cycle. And at the end of that cycle... We're immediately taken up to heaven, aren't we? Chapter 4, and John sees the Lamb in glory. The exalted Lamb, the Lamb that was slain, Jesus Christ. He is now sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God the Father. The Father said to him, sit down at my right hand now, 
until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Psalm 110, verses 1 to 3. So that is the second thing John saw, but as he saw the Lamb, the Lamb was given the seals. How many seals were there? Seven seals. So that was the second cycle. And uh, I'm reminding you once again, by way of introduction, that these cycles are what we call synchronous. They're happening at the same time. They're running in parallel with each other. And uh, they are meant to give us a a, a true picture, so much to say, I suppose, concerning this last epoch. Another way of explaining it, I said one way before we can think of these cycles is perhaps you can imagine a football match and you're seeing a goal scored from different angles, seven different angles. Or, I thought of this this week, imagine you've heard of the way they do certain prints. Imagine there's seven colors on a print and uh, the first color will be maybe white or black or yellow or something like that. But you've got seven colors. And every time a color's run over, you see a clearer picture. But it's the same picture. And see, as we go through the book of Revelation, the picture develops. Everything becomes more clear. The picture becomes more crystallized, as it were. So that's the sense. It's the same thing happening, but from different angles, different perspectives. And there... As we thought of the seven seals, only Christ is worthy to unloose the seals. Only he has the authority because he has overcome. What are the seals? Well, we thought of them. They are God's eternal decrees concerning the things that must take place on this earth during this last epoch. And Christ alone is worthy to unseal them. Now, what were the seven seals? Very briefly, the first one was the paramount one, wasn't it? It was the the first horse that went out. And the one that is significant is not the horse, but the rider upon the white horse. He that is crowned with a crown there. And we find him in Revelation chapter 19, don't we? Verses 11 to 16 there. At the end of it all, with many crowns upon his head. It says he rides forth, going forth, conquering and to conquer. Well, he is the first. Is he not the first and the last? Is he not the Alpha and the Omega? Of course, all the other seals are subservient to him and his purposes. He sets everything in motion. This epoch has come about because he has ascended up into heaven. And... uh, He now lives and prays to intercede for his people. He's our high priest. He's also our king in heaven. He's our teacher. He sent his Holy Spirit into our hearts. He equips and enables preachers to preach his word. We're not sufficient for this. It is Jesus Christ. And when a saint dies, where do they go? They go immediately to join the great company of believers in heaven. And this world will be in shock one day when it sees the vast company of believers. They say, oh, the church is so small, it's so insignificant. But my friends, wait. When this world sees the vast company, 
of believers redeemed by Jesus Christ, who his spirit has saved, and who have been washed by his blood. He purged their sins on the cross at Calvary. They'll see one day. And then we, we saw the various seals that flow in succession, the rider on the red horse, meaning wars and conflict. We've seen that in those verses. Then the black horse, hardship, poverty, and riches. Then the fourth seal, there was the pale horse. And that rep- represented what? Death. And then the fifth seal we saw was the cry of the martyrs under the altar that was slain for Christ. How long, O Lord, will this carry on? Of course, as we look to those seals, they're all happening at the same time. There's poverty, there's riches, there's death. These things will remain while the earth continues. We can't expect this to be a a utopia. It's not going to be a utopia. It's not going to be heaven on earth. It's, It's a fallen world. It's a marred world, and it's a world that hates Christ above all. And it's a world that hates the church, because it hates God. And you remember, there was the sixth seal. And uh, that was there in chapter 6, verse 12, which were great signs in the earth and in the heavens. And then remember, John hears in chapter 7, of all the people, that God has sealed. And again, perhaps to those who found this difficult to understand, when you open there to John chapter 7, we notice John hears a number. And the number is 144,000. Now, hear what I'm saying very carefully. He hears a number. It's a number that comes from heaven. And it's a number that God knows. And, And by the way, that number... 144,000 is symbolic. It's not a literal number, but it's, it's a number. It's a perfect number that God knows. And of course, we've got, we've seen it before, 12 tribes in the Old Testament, plus you have the 12 apostles representing the New Church, the New Testament church, so the Old Testament church and the New Testament church, the Old Testament church. Acts 7, 38, the church was in the wilderness. And by the way, the word wilderness means Sinai. When Stephen says in the wilderness, it's not as if the church never met. The church were a people, a believing body, and they met together. And wherever they met, they were God's body of people. And so that number, 144,000, represents, as we said, 12 times 12 is what, 144. If it were just the literal 12 tribes, it would only be 12,000, wouldn't it? Because there's a 1,000 from each tribe. But it is a symbolic number, and it's a number that he hears from heaven. But notice, when he sees the number, it's a number that no man can number. So we see it from, as we saw, two perspectives. From God's perspective, it's a known number. That's the sense, isn't it? God knows every one of his children. Not one of them are going to be missing. And By the way, we're told in Romans 11 that all Israel would be saved. All spiritual Israel. 
Because remember, not all Israel are Israel. That's what we're told. But the true Israel are those who are of the household of faith. Every one of the elect. That's the 144,000. If you want a simple answer, that's what it means. All the elect are sealed. We notice that at the end there. But notice in verse 4, and I heard a number. That's what he heard. It's a number known by God. 144,000, but you come down to verse 9. After this, from John's perspective, after this, I beheld, that is, I saw. What did he see? A great multitude, which no man can number. Now, that's it, isn't it? It's a vast number. So to God, the number is known. But as John looks, he says, you know, it's such a vast number. I could never tell you what number it is. But who are all of these? These are they that have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, as we said, this has nothing to do with justification by faith. Because we know that the believer, his sins were dealt with as Christ bore their sins in his body on the cross. That's what Isaiah fifty-three eleven says. My righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. And also, Peter says, he bore our sins in his own body. So Christ dealt with our sins, but this has to do with sanctification. These, notice verse 14, where one says, I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest who are these? He said unto me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Who are these arrayed in white? These people lived a sanctified life. Every day they knew they were sinners. But they believed John's words when he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is, we're cleansed from a guilty conscience. Yes, Christ has died for my sins, but I say to my soul, how can I live any longer to my sin? I must live to God. I must live to Christ. So I serve God now in a living faith after the fact that he loved me. And I, I love him. And this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. There's a sense in which the Christian cleanses himself by walking in the fear of God, by confessing his sins, by the word. Husbands are told to read the word of God to their wives, to wash them in the word. It's true for every believer. You not only wash your guilty conscience, but the word of God has a sanctifying effect. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ prayed, didn't he? Father, sanctify them by thy word. Thy word is truth. I mean, we've even seen people who are not even saved. Their lives somewhat changed. I'm not saying they're saved, but they realize certain things are wrong. And the word can still have some effect upon them. But that's not salvation. 
course. But for the believer, it's by the word. He changes. And of course, the word is Christ. Now, before we lose track this evening, those are the seals. And just at the end there, we see that the seventh seal now is opened. Come to this. It's interesting between the seventh seal of the second cycle and now the beginning of the third cycle. What is interesting is the seventh seal, as it is opened, it leads on to another scene. It's like you're going into another room. But there's a silence just between these two cycles, if you like. It's not a silence on earth. And that's the interesting point to make. The silence is not on earth, but it's in heaven. And it's as if, as we'll see from Scripture, the angels are in holy awe of all that is taking place. Because God is on his throne. And God is making these things to be. Whatever we see, whatever we learn from Scripture, whatever comes to pass, we must understand this one thing. Nothing comes to pass without God's predeterminate will. Nothing. And you'll see here as the seventh seal is opened, Another scene is open, another set of visions seen from a different angle. But it's, again, running in parallel, in unison with the other cycles. Now let's, first of all, see the seventh seal in chapter 8, and it's the silence. It's the seventh seal. It's silence. Notice. And when I heard, when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. Now I said it's in heaven, and it is in heaven. And it's a period, a time, the best scholars suggest this is, this, as John sees it, John was in the spirit on the Lord's day. By the way, the Lord's day is the Lord's day. It's not any other day. There's one day of the week, and it's the Lord's day. It's the Lord's day Sabbath. And John here, he observes about half an hour, it says, about the space of half an hour, he says, of silence. And that's very important, as I said, for us to notice. And what is the meaning, perhaps, here of this silence? Well, Scripture should always interpret Scripture. As I said and suggested, and I suggest to you it means the angels are just in awe. You, you've got to think that heaven is an atmosphere of the fear of God. It is. There's a holy filial fear of God. And all that is taking place, they behold. In Habakkuk 2, verse 20, we read concerning God's judgment over Israel. And by the way, what we have seen in the last seal of judgments we read, but the Lord it is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. You read that again. 
But the Lord is in his holy temple. And all the earth keeps silence before him. You see, the, if you read the context of that chapter, the Israelite might complain. Why is all this happening to us? Habakkuk 2.20. Why is all this happening to us? Well, one might start to complain. God is on his throne. What about the promises to Israel, to God's people? God is on his throne. God is judging righteously. Don't ever question God. God it is in his holy temple that all the earth keeps silence before him. And that's what you have in heaven. The angels know when to keep quiet. We should know when to keep quiet. We shouldn't question God. And here it seems that the heavenly host ponder this last seal, this sixth seal. And they will see all the desolations in the earth. Reminded me of that Psalm 46, verse 8. We read, Come, behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he has made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. And then we read, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. God says, you see all the things that are happening? I make the war, I end the war. You be still and remember who is God. I am God. I, not you, am. I continue to be God. And I am almighty God. Over all these things. So there's this holy silence. There's this ponder over God's power and his wrath. As it is just about to be poured out by, as we'll see now, seven trumpets. And these are sort of judgments in the earth, as we'll see. The trumpet in the Old Testament was usually sounded when a battle was about to begin. Some judgment was to be sounded. But just before that, here we're still in the silence. Verse 3, And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, which came with the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. Now, first of all, you must note here that these prayers are offered up by God's people, the saints. Who are the saints? They are them who are called to be holy. It's not who the Roman Catholic Church determines to be a saint. What is a saint? And in fact, the word is the word hagiagos, one called to be holy. And we're all called to be holy. Paul writes the Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 7, he says, Beloved of God, called, you find it there in your authorized version, called to be saints, called to be holy. And they pray. And uh, here's the question, do we pray? We pray, the Lord hears our prayer, but who do we pray? In whose name? We don't pray in Mary's name, we pray in the Lord Jesus Christ's name. 
And our prayers, as it were, ascend up to heaven only because of him. Remember what he said? He said on a number of occasions, first of all, John 14, verse 13, he said, pray in my name. John 15, 16, he tells us there to pray in his name. Ask of the Father in my name. And because of what he has done for us as our mediator, our prayers are received up as a sweet odor. There in Ephesians 5, 2, we have the words, Christ has also loved us and hath given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God, as a sweet-smelling savor. And you know, when we pray in Christ's name, and we ask in the right manner, and we pray by the Spirit, of course, we cannot pray a proper prayer with even the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit of God. By the Spirit of God, we're told, we cry, Abba, Father. And as we pray, Our prayers, as it were, ascend up. God hears. And what is the effect of this? Well, they lead. This is amazing. They lead to these judgments. Well, why? Well, the world has to come to an end, my friends. The world has to come to an end. If God allowed this world... To carry on, what kind of a God would he be? Think of all the murders. Think of the death. Think of the violence. Think of the broken families. Think of the troubled world that we live in. It has to come to an end. And these prayers being offered up, the Lord hears them. Now some say, if you look at verse 5, and the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth, and there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. Now some say, and I must admit that's a very difficult verse to translate or to, uh, to, um, to understand. What could it mean? It could mean and I think this is probably the most likely interpretation, that God is giving his assent that these trumpets are now going to happen. There's some sort of sign that he gives lightnings and an earthquake. Something significant is going to happen. We don't have all the answers. But I would suggest that that's the most likely interpretation. And what you find now is seven trumpets sounded. And each and every one of them are the judgments. And again, remember that these trumpets are running synchronously with the seals and with the churches. So everything is happening in parallel unison together. And so the seventh seal here actually opens the door to the seven trumpets or judgments We could even say mini-judgments if we could use that phrase. It's like another layer. Remember I said you you can imagine a picture and you've got seven colors. And you've added one color. You're putting another one on there. You're getting a clearer picture. These things are bringing us a clearer picture of what is happening on the earth. 
What is happening in this present world? Warnings. This is what we have in these trumpets here. And by the way, let me say this. These warnings, these trumpets, and these natural, people call them natural disasters, but they're not. They are God's judgments that he sends. And by the way, they are not designed to make men repent. Why do I say that? Because nothing will make men repent. I'm going to show you from the next book, in fact, Revelation 9, in a minute, that nothing will make a man repent except a new heart. You can bring as many disasters as you will upon this earth, but man will not repent. We have the classic example in Pharaoh, don't we? How many plagues did God send upon Egypt? Ten? Even then he didn't listen. That's natural man. You can't turn him. But let me say these things are here for at least two reasons. These trumpets are here so that as they're ignored, they make final judgment even worse. Men were warned, but they did nothing about it. But secondly, they're actually meant to strengthen the believer in his faith. If you turn to Revelation 9, verse 20, we read there that actually these trumpets and these warnings and these disasters have no effect upon the earth, upon natural man. Revelation 9.20, And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of their works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which can ni- neither can see, nor hear, nor walk, neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. So basically, the word of God is covering every sin here. Men do not repent because of these disasters upon the earth. So what's the purpose, as I said? As they're ignored, it makes the final judgment even worse for man. But secondly, they're designed for us as believers. When we see them happening, we say, I see it. This is what God has said. And we don't despair in this world, do we? We say, God is doing exactly what he said he would do. So verse 6, And the seven angels, which had the seven trumpets, prepared themselves to sound. Now, the first angel and trumpet we have in verse 7. The first angel sounded, then there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth. Now, as we've said before, we can't take every single thing literally. The book of the Revelation speaks of a key 
and a real and, and a prison and a cage where Satan is cast into. Now we know Satan is a spirit. Is there a real key that we lock him in, and he's cast into some sort of prison? It's figurative. But here we have hail and fire. These two things picture hot and cold. We'd associate these two things, wouldn't we? Hail and fire. And there sounded, therefore, followed hail and fire. Mingled with blood. Well, what does that mean, mingled with blood? It means that there's going to be death. It means that there's going to be cold and heat, and there's going to be death resultant. And these were cast upon the earth. So you notice the reference there to hail and fire, heat and cold. And and the key here, meaning, is there's going to be inclement weather. So long as the earth remains, but it's going to be proportioned. Because you notice so many times in this passage, a third is mentioned, a third is mentioned. Not all people will die. In other words, when these things happen throughout this epoch. But it will kill, it will destroy people, and it will be successive. There will be either the scorching sun, as we have in Australia, and we've seen the crops. I was out there for a number of years, destroyed and seen the locusts. I've lived in Africa. You hear of other countries where there have been terrible disasters, cold, mingled with blood, we're told here. And, and this is important. From We understand that everything that happens in this world, we must understand from a biblical perspective, not from the climate change lobby. You know, very popular today, the climate change lobby. We can think of them tonight. I can't imagine them being on the M25 as it's bitterly cold out there tonight. Can you? They were out there a few weeks ago when it was nice and warm. But I think they'd rather be making fools of themselves if they were out there tonight in the cold, saying we're under global warming. But friends, there are times and seasons where the Lord just turns things upside down. And he holds the weathermen in confusion. And if there's any explanation to a change in the climate or anything, we must put it down to God, not global warming. Why do I say that? If you turn to Genesis 8.22, we read there, Genesis 8.22, I'll give you time there to, to turn. Here's a solemn word, a word to Noah, and it has to do with the rest of time. God flooded the earth once, he won't do it again. There will be floods, but not an entire deluge of the planet. He said to Noah, after the flood, while the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. In other words, the seasons will continue by and large. The world's going to continue on in its orbit. The ozone layer is not going to be gone. The world's not going to end in global warming. 
But it's going to end with the coming of the Son of God upon the clouds of glory. Now, there are going to be times, and you notice here, we read, and a third part of trees was burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. We notice that it's limited in terms of its scope, wherever it happens. And why? Because God is saying to man, I'm angry. Many people will lose their lives. We learn, we read here that it's mingled with blood. And those whose lives are swept away, they are swept away into a lost eternity. These things may take many people's lives, but not everybody. And those that are left are under even a more severe warning. It is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. So we don't see all here die. And we have to be honest, there are still good harvests, aren't there? I mean, we can, it's amazing how much even food is imported into this country. Even on aeroplanes, ships, fruits from all over the world, still getting them. The springtime, summer, harvest, wherever. But there are judgments we have to know in various parts of the earth. As God said to Noah, while the earth remaineth sea time and harvest, cold and heat and summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So these are God's trumpets. So that's the first seal, or yes, first trumpet, should we say. Then we come to the verse 8 and 9 which is the second angel and the second trumpet. Again, this is another parallel running synchronously. It's not just upon the earth, but notice this will affect the seas and all that are in the seas and vessels and ships. The second angel sounded as if it were a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea and the third part of the sea became blood. And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. And the third part of the ships were destroyed. Now, it's important to notice the words very carefully here. John doesn't say that a burning mountain was cast into the sea. Notice what he says. And as it were, he said it was like and the second angel sounded, and as it were a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea. And remember, this is symbolic language. It doesn't actually say a mountain was cast there. Now, again, as I say, this is a vision. And the correct key to interpretation, again, we see here, the sea was turned into blood. This, again, is figurative of death. We don't imagine the sea being red, a third part. I mean, common sense tells you, you know, if, if you put some blood in water, it completely disperses. It doesn't quarter itself off or anything like that. So the idea is there's death. And what he's saying here is there's going to be death in the sea as well as land. There's going to be death in all the world. You will not escape it. 
Men might run to the hills or even try to run to seas. But they're going to be tsunamis. There is going to be cataclysmic weather. There are going to be typhoons and tornadoes and cyclones. My, we've seen them, haven't we? I mean, they're starting to name them after people now. Can't keep up with all of them that are coming season after season. And uh, they seem to be coming across the Atlantic now. We get the effects of it. And we read here of the disaster. Think of all that has happened in this sea. Can you remember the tsunami? 2004, Boxing Day. Over 230,000 people died altogether from 14 countries. It was colossal, wasn't it? Who would ever have thought? And I, I remember, I used to work offshore and uh, a little place that I, when I was not working, used to go and stay, was completely wiped out. I thought, had I not come here, the Lord not brought me here, I'd have been taken away in that. Spared by God's grace. But how quickly lives were swept away. Now some of these things are are hard to see, but remember, part of it is, is pictorial language, symbolic. And there's death. Blood. Man's blood. Maybe even creatures dying. All kinds of things dying. This is all part of God's warning. These are the trumpets. Then we read verse 9, And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. And the third part of the ships were destroyed. Now some people debate, are these the animal creatures? Those that say no, say because it speaks of ships and then creatures. And doesn't speak of human beings, so it's speaking of people on the ships. We won't get into that debate. But we know this, that there will be many deaths. We've seen them, we've seen tankers overthrown, huge vessels. When people said, nobody will sink the Titanic. That was the biggest dare to Almighty God. Not even God can sink the Titanic. Reminds me of the The man in the market sometimes says to me, not even God will save me. I'm passing by sometimes, you know, and I think, well, God's power is immense. He can save or he can destroy. People dare God, don't they? Well, we see so much devastation, hurricanes, tornadoes. All these died. And you notice again that a third part of the ships would... So that everything is in measure. God is is not completely destroying everything, but these things are designed to warn man. Then we come now to the third angel and trumpet, verse nine. And the third angel sounded. Sorry, verse ten. The third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven burning as it were a lamp. And it fell upon 
the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. Now some suggest that this is a literal star that falls. We don't know. But the effect, whether it's literal or whether in some way God pollutes all the rivers. What's the result? Death. Man thinks he might be able to keep himself, but even the water we drink can be polluted. God can pollute the clouds. The clouds send down the rain, go into the rivers, people drink. All these things are of God. Again, some suggest it's a literal star. We don't know. But the thing is, people die. We don't need to know. I'm afraid there's some things we don't need to know. But we do need to be warned, don't we? That's the point. People have cholera. Think of infections that come by water. We read here, it came as as a burning lamp and fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. It came, the name of the star was called Wormwood. By the way, Wormwood means bitter waters. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. Think of that place where Moses was as he brought the people out by the Lord and they drank that water and it was bitter. They didn't die. But the Lord said to him to cast a tree into the water and it became sweet. But here there's no mercy. The water is bitter. People die. There'll be diseases. As we're told here, people die because of this. Now, the key in all of this to notice is that God is not out of control. And the world is not out of control. Everything is done in measure. If we get anything from this passage, everything is measured. Everything is determined by God. You see, these things explain why things appear the way they are in this world. Things seem to carry on, but there are these sudden happenings here, there. But men do not repent. And what is it telling you? What is it telling me as a Christian? That was you, my friend. That's what God's telling me. That was me. I wouldn't listen. No matter how bad things were in this world, I wouldn't listen. It's interesting, you know. The world, when it sees these things, they say, what a bad God. That's the world, isn't it? What kind of a God is he? 
No repentance. But it's done in measure. God could destroy the world at a stroke. What would you say then? The fourth angel and trumpet. And the fourth angel sounded, the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, the third part of the stars also. The third part of them was darkened. You see, things get worse. We've seen this in the second cycle in chapter 6. Real signs in the heavens. And perhaps more intensely, as Jesus Christ comes, we don't know the day, the hour that he will come. But it's intensifying. And it's all here to remind us that all of these things, whether it's the weather, whether it's the planet systems, all of these things are God's agencies or his instruments by which he warns a sinful world that this world is coming to an end. Mustn't read any more into it than that. People want to read so much more into the word. But they miss the central message. God is coming. And men won't repent. I take you back there to that verse where it says, Revelation 9.20, Yet repented not of the works of their hands. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the work of their hands. Verse 21, neither repented they of their murders. You know, you read on. Despite what God does, and therefore man is all the more guilty. Don't think. But people, even when they're starving, you, you think people are more ready to come to God when they're starving? Never. They come, they come to church because you can give them some food and they'll come back the next week for some food, but they won't want this food. When all's well, they're back at home. You help people out. We've seen it. You help people out. Do they want this food? No. That's the world. That's natural man. And what I want you and I to glean from this as I make application and draw to a close now tonight, just a couple of points for application. First of all, see how hard the human heart is. The oldest book in the world is the Bible. And yet it is the most ignored book. It's, it's the most read book. But it's the most ignored book. Years ago, it, it, it used to be in every hotel. Now you can hardly get in into a hotel. We're struggling in the Trinitarian Bible Society to get Bibles in hotels and places. Oh, we don't want that now. See how hard the human heart is. Second Peter three three 
Peter says, knowing this verse, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lust, saying, where is the promise of his coming? And so on. You know that chapter. But then the end will come. God will come as a thief in the night. Men have not changed since Noah's day. The oldest book is telling us that these disasters are bound to happen. Secondly, man seeing these disasters does not change his heart. Only God can change the heart. And therefore, where does this leave us as Christians tonight? It should not leave us smug. It should humble us. Let me say this, pride over the lost is not becoming of a Christian. It is not becoming of a Christian. You are who you are by the grace of God. It's only God that has opened your eyes and opened my eyes to see. We'd be lost with this world without God's grace. Amen.